Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, good evening, everyone. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this evening. Thrilled that you're here. Um, As Anna said, we've been doing a series over the last few Sundays on uh, David's life. And up till this point, um, where I've gone with David is we've been talking about the geographical, the key geographical locations of his life and using them as kind of boundary markers to talk about the things that God taught David and shaped in him so that he could be the man of God that God intended him to be. So we've looked at Bethlehem where we talked about David learning to be faithful in the natural things in the obscure, quiet, monotonous places of his life. We talked about David at Gibeah where David is tested by early success in Saul's court. Um, We talked about the cave of Adullam where David was tested by adversity. Hebron where David learns to wait for the full release of God's purposes and promises. And then finally, last time, we talked about Zion, where David learns to live in the fulfillment of the dream that God had given him. Over the next couple of weeks, um, leading up to our Advent season, I want to talk with you about several features of David's life that I think helped him or marked him out to be, as the Scripture calls him, a man after God's own heart. So this evening, I want to look, geographically we're traveling back actually to where David was in Adullam, but we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 25, and uh, I want to talk about what happened in that chapter. Uh, It's a very interesting chapter. As I say, at this point in the story, David is still on the run from Saul. He's taken refuge in the southernmost part of the land of Judah in the wilderness, uh, in the deserts of Judah, the wilderness of Paran. Um, Paran was what we might call a high crime district. It was full of roving gangs, marauding Philistine war parties, wild Bedouin tribes who would raid villages and kill and steal. Now, David moves into that area quite rapidly. He has some 600 men gather with him. And David and his 600 men introduce into that pretty much Wild West area, a semblance of law and order into the moral anarchy that had prevailed up to that point in time. You remember that David himself had been a shepherd. He knew the dangers posed by these lawless elements uh, and, and out of compassion, I think, went out of his way to ensure that the shepherds in that area were protected from these roving gangs, from these marauding characters. Now, in 1 Samuel 25, there are three key uh, characters in the story. There's David, there's a man called Nabal, and then his Nabal's wife, Abigail. They are the three major characters of the story in 1 Samuel 25. And the chapter can be divided into a, a series of segments from verse 1 to 11 is really what we call the provocation of Nabal. And I want to read the first 11 to 12 verses, 11 verses of this chapter. It says, David moved again, this time to the wilderness of Maon. There was a certain man in Maon who carried on his business in the region of Carmel. He was very prosperous, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was the sheep shearing time in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal, a Carmelite, a, a Cabalite, and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and good-looking. 
The man was brutish and mean. David, out in the back country, heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep and sent ten of his young men off with these instructions. Go to Carmel and approach Nabal. Greet him in my name. Peace, life and peace to you. Peace to your household. Peace to everyone here. I heard at sheep shearing time. Here's the point. When your shepherds were camped near us, we didn't take advantage of them. They didn't lose a thing all the time they were with us in Carmel. Ask your young men. They will tell you. What I'm asking is that you be generous with my men. Share the feast. Give whatever your heart tells you to your servants and to me, David, your son. David's young men went and delivered his message word for word to Nabal, and Nabal tore into them. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? The country is full of runaway servants these days. Do you think I'm going to take good bread and wine and meat freshly butchered for my sheep shearers and give it to, to men I've never laid eyes on? Who knows where they've come from? This guy Nabal is a very interesting character, to say the least. Um, he's described as being very great, uh, which is probably better translated, he's very rich. F.B. Meyer said that there are four types of greatness. Number one, a greatness of possessions. Number two, a greatness of actions. Number three, a greatness of thought. And number four, a greatness of character. Nabal only makes the list by virtue of the first. He has great possessions. He's very, very wealthy. But the scripture describes him in the King James Version as being churlish and evil in his doings. The word churlish means cruel, hard-hearted, belligerent, stiff-necked stiff and stubborn. And evil in his doings simply means he was dishonest and deceptive. When you read this story, without some kind of cultural understanding, um, it could lead to the wrong idea in terms of David's request. According to the customs of the time, sheep shearing season, it was really common for the owner of the flock to set aside a portion of the profits for those who had protected the shepherds and the sheep. It's kind of akin in our, in our era to tipping the waiter. There was, there was no law that required it, but it was an acknowledgement of work well done, and it was an expression of gratitude. And Nabal's men acknowledged the work that David and his men had done in this regard. David's request wasn't an unreasonable one. And in verse 15 and 16, Nabal's men say, these men treated us very well. They took nothing from us. They didn't take advantage of us all the time we were in the fields. They formed a wall around us, protecting us day and night all the time we were out there tending sheep. So the request actually was a reasonable one. Now, what happens is Nabal absolutely spurns David's men and spurns David's request. And listening to him talk, you can't help but re be reminded of another rich fool that's found in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus tells a story, Luke chapter 12, and, and, and it says, He spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man bought forth plentifully. And the rich man thought within himself, saying, what shall I do because I have no room in which to store my fruits? And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones, and I will store all my fruits and my goods there, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I'm 
labeling the I and the my. And you compare that with Nabal's perspective in verse 11 where he says, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my sharers and give it to men about whom I know not where they come from? Both these two men, A, both rich, B, both fools, and both of them are self-referential in the extreme. Life is all about me, mine, there's no thought of ours or others. To justify his refusal of David's request, Nabal starts talking about the fact that there are lots of servants running away from their masters these days, and David is just one more. And he uses a ploy that a lot of people use to avoid what might well be a valid uh, expression or a request. He uses generalities to avoid specifics. He reminds me of people who, for example, refuse to give some uh, to some specific aid organization, feeling justified in their refusal because they've heard generalities about the fact that aid doesn't always arrive at where it's intended to arrive. Now, using generalities to refuse a specific most often provides the needed, needed excuse not to give which actually was the resolve of this man's heart from the very outset. Nabal lumps David with common criminals who inhabit the wilderness. Actually, he knows who David is. He calls him, without being told, the son of Jesse. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, clearly knows who David is and knew that he was a man of honor. Later on, she says, my Lord fights the battles of Jehovah and evil has not been found in him all your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your soul. She's talking about Saul. It was common knowledge what was happening in regard Saul and David's relationship. David, up to the point that he has to flee to Adullam, has been a national hero. He's not someone who just pops up out of the blue and asks for some help from Nabal. Nabal knows the story, but he's looking for an excuse not to be generous. He finds one, and in finding it, um, really insults David in the extreme. He badly misrepresents David and he maligns his motivation. And he repays David's kindness with insolence and mockery. So we've got the provocation of Nabal from verse 1 to 11. Verses 12 and 13 highlight the passion of David. David is ticked off. David's young men turn, they go their way, they come back, and they tell him all of the things. David says to his men, let each man gird on his sword, and each one girds his sword. And David also girds his sword. About 400 men went up after David, and 200 stayed by the staff. David basically says, right, I've had it with this guy. We're going we're gonna to wipe out everything that belongs to him. We're going to kill him and everything that belongs to him. He loses his temper completely when he hears of Nabal's response to his valid request. It, it's interesting because up until this point in the story, one of the characteristics of David has been his self-control under duress. He had waited patiently at Bethlehem for the Lord to promote him. He hadn't fought back when Saul had started throwing spears at him. He hadn't taken the opportunity to kill Saul when he had it in the cave and then later in the camp. He, he had been known up to this point for incredible self-control under duress. Now, I don't, I don't know what it's like for you, but, but I've found that sometimes I can be in a situation where I can 
battle through and come out okay in terms of something really large, and then shortly after that completely lose it on something that's really small. And I wonder that it's a bit psychological. I've stored up, I've held back, I've bit my lip for a season, and then when it's over, some tiny little issue opens the floodgate and I take a shotgun to a mosquito. Completely lose it. And David, who up until this point is able to see beyond the maniacal spear-throwing king and see the Lord's anointed, now can't see anything in Nabal but an ungrateful piece of garbage who needs to be disposed of. And he determines that he's going to pay this high-handed individual in his own coin. This is quid pro quo. This is tit for tat. I'm going to fix this guy for good. What he fails to see in this moment, in this moment of fury, is that he's about to behave in a manner quite befitting King Saul. He is on the verge of doing something that could cast a dark shadow over his future. So we have the provocation of Nabal, we have the passion of David, and the remainder of the chapter is really about the preparations and petitions of this incredible woman, Abigail. One of Nabal's servants, who hears how Nabal has responded to David and his, and his men, is horrified by his master's stupidity. In a world like that, he knows that there will be consequences. And so he goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail, with the news of what her husband has done. And as you follow this story through, you see that Abigail is everything that Nabal isn't. She is described as having a beautiful countenance and being of good understanding. She was beautiful inside and out. Alan Redpath in his book on David Quips, beauty on the inside and outside don't always go together. There is a beauty that's only skin deep and it's accompanied by an empty head and a shallow heart. This woman wasn't like that. She was beautiful inside and out. Nabal's servants know the quality of this of their mistress, they know that they can trust her to act wisely in the emergency that is about to break on them. Once Abigail gets wind of the insult and the anticipated consequences, she takes swift action to head off David and David's predictably angry response. So she gathers together the making of a magnificent feast, loads it upon the pack animals and sets out to try and intercept David. They meet. He's coming down one side of the ravine. She's coming down the other side. The moment she sees him, she dismounts, falls on her knees, puts her face on the ground in reverence and respect and implores him not to carry out his intentions. It doesn't say this, I'm paraphrasing, but please, please, please don't do this. This is not an action worthy of a prince of Israel. Remember who you are. Remember God's anointing. Don't stoop to fighting grudge battles. Your task is to fight the battles of the Lord. Now, that's a paraphrase, but it's a reasonably accurate one. In effect, what she's doing is she's reminding of, uh, him in this moment of anger who he is and what he's called to be. And it's as if she's saying, your task, David, is not to exact vengeance. That's God's business. My husband, Nabal, is a fool. His name actually means fool. He is fool by name and fool by nature. But don't you also become a fool. There's, there's one fool in this story, and one fool in a story is quite enough. And she reminds him of a coming day. 
when the promises of God will be fulfilled. And again, it is as if she's saying, how wonderful it will be for you on that day not to have to look back on a black shadow cast by the murder of a man and his entire family. David is a remarkable person. In, in his anger, he, he listens. Improbably, David stops, looks, and listens. Abigail, in the middle of nowhere, on her knees before David, speaks God back into his life. And the accelerating momentum of the story and of his anger and possible foolishness is halted and then reversed by this remarkable woman. The thing that I want to draw to your attention, the thing that I think makes David quite a remarkable character and certainly a man after God's own heart is this issue of forgiveness. I'm not going to talk in any particular depth, just make a few observations really, but the need for forgiveness, the issue of forgiveness comes up in every single one of our lives and it comes up relatively regularly. It's a common issue and it's also a crucial one. There's probably not a person here tonight who hasn't had a situation where you have felt completely misrepresented, maybe slighted, perhaps even betrayed. And I want to say to you, how you respond in those moments may well determine your future path. I, I know people, and you probably do too, who have faced these kinds of times and have been completely overcome and poisoned by resentment and bitterness. And they never really get over the betrayal, over the slight, over the anger. Now, it may be justified. It was in David's case. It may be justified, but I want to say to you that's not the point. Justified bitterness will poison you just as fast as unjustified bitterness will do. We have to come to a place in those moments where you feel you've been slighted, betrayed, or misrepresented. You have to come to a place where you can hand it over to God. And maybe each one of us need an Abigail-type person who, in our fury, sits us down and says, don't do this. Don't be this kind of person. One fool in the story is enough. Don't do this. Turn around, go home. And David did. He turned around and he went home. And God intervened, if you know the story, and dealt with Nabal. When Abigail arrived back at home, uh, Nabal was in the midst of a party. He was completely drunk. She didn't bother telling him that night. The next morning, she told him what had happened and how close he had come to losing both his life and all his possessions. He was so struck by that, he had a, he, he, um, some translations say he had a heart attack. We would probably say he had a stroke. And 10 days later, he died. That's vindication, isn't it? You know what? Some of us need to turn around and go home and just leave the situation in the hands of God to deal with as he sees fit. And just in this brief message tonight, I'd like to give you three bits of advice for these kinds of seasons when they come. Not if they come. I, I want to tell you, they come to every single life. There's enough misunderstanding. There's, there's enough just difficult people. There's enough malicious people. These things will happen to you. How do you behave when they do? Number one, I'd like to suggest to you, whatever you do when these kinds of conflicts arise, take your time, think about it, be wise. Don't respond and act and speak in that 
first moment of absolute anger. David says, gird up your swords. We've had a guts full of this kind of behavior. I'm going to deal to it. And out he goes. And, and so many of us have had that same kind of response. If, if you're not careful, you can easily seek to handle those moments of misunderstanding or betrayal or conflict in the strength and energy of your own flesh. You may feel you're justified. In fact, you may actually be, but James chapter 1, verse 20 says, human anger does not achieve God's righteous purpose. One thing I've learned, if I speak when I'm angry, I generally make the best speech I ever live to regret. Okay, and it'll be the same for you. When you speak when you're angry, even if it's justified, you'll, live, you'll, you'll make the best speech you ever live to regret. Take the time to think. Allow perhaps an Abigail to speak to you. You know what? I have seldom felt sorry for things that I didn't say. Take time. Before you throw yourself into the fray, stop, look, and listen. Ask for God's perspective. Actually, remember also there are always two sides to a story. Proverbs says, he that answers before he hears the other side of a story is a fool. And sometimes we hear one side of a story, we launch in with righteous indignation only to hear somebody else say, hang on a minute, stop, stop. That's not quite the way it was. And we hear the other side of a story, and sometimes, you know, we feel completely humiliated, completely foolish, because we didn't simply take the time to find out what the true story was. So when you have those moments, at least take time to try and find out what's going on. Secondly, take each conflict as it comes and handle them separately. You may have won a really big battle yesterday, but that doesn't count when today's skirmish comes. And I have really found that sometimes when I know the stakes are high, I bite my lip, I get my way through it, as I said before, and then something small happens and it just triggers off everything that had really built up over that. And I launch into something with a degree uh, and an intensity that is completely out of order. Just, just be beware of that. You may have exercised self-control yesterday, but it doesn't count for today's battle. In each situation, we have to look to the Lord for grace to behave in accordance with who he has called you to be. Thirdly, trust the Lord to vindicate you. David learned this. Sometimes when somebody speaks against us, we want to redress the balances of universal justice and we want to do it right now. You know what? I've found that you just can't do it. And, and you know, the tragic thing is lies run around the earth seven times while truth's doing up its shoelaces. You know, it just flies out all over the world and you don't even get a chance. Just... When, when we took over the church, some of you know the story, when we took over the church in, in the early 90s, the stories that went out about Karen and I across our nation were just, some of them, laughable, except that it really wasn't funny. And we had to make a decision. We had to decide, were we going to sort this out and go around and follow every rumor or, or just let it go? And, and you know, um, partially because we couldn't trace every rumor, we just decided to let it go. We just had to say, Lord, we give this over to you. And, and um, you, if there's going to be any vindication, you're going to have to do it because I, I'm not. I refuse to try and fulfill the role of CEO of the universe. And, and I just, I can't do it. And the reality is neither will you be able to. 
We have to just leave it in God's hands. You know, in Romans chapter uh, 12, verse 19, it says, don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. And you know what? It was a lesson that David really learned. Much later in his life, we have the incident where he's leaving the city, fleeing from his own son, Absalom who has pulled off a coup and is trying to kill his father. And there's a man by the name of Shimei, who was a descendant of Saul and obviously had borne in his heart some animosity toward David and the way things had gone. And he's running along the top of the hill, throwing stones and dust at David as he's leaving and cursing him and saying, "Good, this is, this is just what you deserve and all kinds of other stuff. And one of David's men says, why don't you just let me go up there and take off his head? And David says, no, don't do it. It's just, maybe the Lord's letting him do this. Just don't do it. You know, the interesting thing at the end of that story is Absalom's killed, the rebellion is quelled, and on the way back, Shimei's going, <laughs> sorry, sorry I said those things. And one of David's men says, can I, can I do it now? Can I go and kill him now? And David says, you sons of Joab, you're always trying to kill somebody. Just stop it. Leave him alone. David had learned the lesson. We've got to learn it too. You might, you might say to me, but Don, you have no idea what that person did to me, what they said about me, how badly that hurt. And, and you know, the reality is, of course I don't. I'll tell you one thing I do know, though. I do know what will happen to you if you don't let it go. I do know what will happen to you if you don't let it go and, like David, turn around and go home. It'll poison you. Somebody said that kind of bitterness is like swallowing poison and hoping the other person will die. And it really is like that. It really does work like that. You say, well, Don, but that's fine. You know, I, I, I just can't get to that place where I can forgive and forget. You might have heard me talk about this before, but I want to just say that whole idea, forgive and forget, is not a biblical idea. We are never told in the Scripture to forgive and forget. Some things that happen to us are so traumatic that in probably a whole lifetime, we will never forget. And if you say to people, you've got to forgive and forget, you have just erected a wall over which they'll probably never be able to um, cross. You know, asking a person who has been sexually abused to forgive and forget is like asking them to climb Mount Everest barefoot and without oxygen. The chances of them forgetting that traumatic event are probably nil. Forgiveness and forgetfulness are not the same thing. You can forgive somebody without ever necessarily forgetting what happened to them, or what happened to you, rather. <coughs> forgiveness is a choice that you make not to be judge, jury, and executioner of the person who has hurt you. Forgiveness is a choice whereby you open the prison doors and say, I will not keep you imprisoned as a result of, of my bitterness. I'm, I'm opening up the door. This is not my business. It's too big for me. I'm letting you go. God will deal with the situation. I refuse to be the one who executes justice on you. It's a choice you make. It's not a memory that you have to forget. You might be saying to me, well, Don, that doesn't seem authentic. You know, when, when, when I have to choose to forgive someone and I don't 
feel forgiving. That doesn't feel authentic to me. Well, friends, you, you don't forgive with your feelings. Just as you don't forgive with your memory, you don't forgive with your feelings either. It's a choice that you make to function in a certain manner. And I want to tell you, authenticity of that kind is completely over, overvalued. This whole idea that people are, you know, I've just got to be myself, I've got to be authentic, uh, you know, I can't be hypocritical, I can't act in some way that doesn't feel genuine to me. Listen, that, that just gives license for people to do anything in the name of authenticity. I, I think that kind of authenticity is not a biblical value or virtue at all. Whenever you learn a new skill, <clears throat> be it playing squash or playing golf or, or any new skill, you have to practice it before it becomes second nature to you. You know, I played a lot of cricket in the early days, and I spent, I don't know, thousands of hours practicing shots in the net, you know, so that when I got into the middle of the park and I'm playing the game for real, it became second nature. If, if the ball was short, I knew I was going back. If the ball was full, I could go forward. And I didn't have to think, ah, ah, what, what will I decide to do? It was so second nature to me, you find yourself doing it without even thinking. It didn't come easy like that. In the early days it was, uh, 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 what am I going to do? You know? but, but you learn it, you practice it. Musicians, you know that. You, you can play chords now that you don't even think of. I, I remember asking a friend of mine to teach me how to play the guitar, and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So we were playing away, and he plays this chord, and I say, what's that? He says, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, I don't know what it is. I just know it's the one you play. I said, this can be hopeless. You're going to be a useless teacher. He said, well, I, I just, it's just, he said, I've been playing since I was that high. I just know to do that. But that comes by practice. Listen, why is it that we think the virtues should just come like that? Patience, joy, forgiveness. Why do we think those things when we don't practice them? The, virtues become virtues by virtue of practice. We do them again and again and again until they do become the nature. I've been talking so long off screens, died. <laughs> when you learn a new skill, at first it doesn't seem authentic, but you practice it, and it does become natural, and it does become authentic. Friends, forgiveness has to be practiced. And if you want to grow to have a really sweet spirit, to be one of those people who there is a sweetness of spirit, you have to develop that that will not come naturally. It's not a personality trait. It's not because you're sanguine or phlegmatic or some other, you know. It comes because you work on it. You practice it. You lean into being gracious, being kind, being forgiving, again and again and again. It's what we're called to be. It's what made David a man after God's own heart. And I'm telling you, you will face those situations where you have the choice like David, as to whether you're going to launch into something with a sword. And it might not be a literal sword, it might just be a verbal sword. Whether you're going to launch into something and start slashing and hacking and, and, and paying back quid pro quo, or whether you're going to pack up and go home. Say, so, you know what? It's not my job. I can't set the world right. God, I trust you to do this. 
I know that ultimately you'll vindicate me. It might take a while, as I said. Lies run around the earth seven times while truth, while truth is putting its shoelaces on, shoes on and doing its shoelaces up. And you think, come on, God, do it quicker than that. Couldn't you vindicate me by next Wednesday, 10 a.m. latest? And he just not, he's not that interested. He's shaping men and women of God. And he wants us to learn that lesson. It's so crucial. God vindicated David in the end, and interestingly enough, Abigail becomes David's wife. Beautiful inside and out, and he recognized it. woman like that, Aria, and he snaffled her up. The Bible doesn't say that. I said that, okay. <laughs> Probably a really good choice. Beautiful inside and out. Part of it is about being wise. Part, about, part of it is recognizing whose battles we are fighting and the desperate need for us to be a forgiving people. Will you stand with me? <coughs> Father, thank you for um, the scriptures. Thank you for the powerful lessons that they contain. Thank you for the fact that they are so relevant to where we live. And thank you, Father, for the call in them to instruct us and shape us as to how to live. We know um, these kinds of things come our way, and Father, you know better than we do how we struggle over them sometimes, <clears throat> how hard it is to let people go. But I pray that you would teach us to be a forgiving people, that you would teach us to be a people who guard their spirits and are careful that they don't become resentful or bitter. Would you help us be that kind of people? Lord, we want to be a people who when we come to our, uh, the fulfillment of our dreams, there's not dark shadows cast over our behavior in, the, in, in, in our journey to that place. Would you help us to be like David, to turn around and go home when we need to? Father, we ask these things in the power of the Holy Spirit and um, and in the name of Jesus, would you do that in us and through us? Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.